LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Peter Russell who joins us to discuss the crumbling barriers between science and spirituality and what contemporary research may be telling us about the origin and nature of consciousness. Western science has had remarkable success in explaining the functioning of the material world, but when it comes to the inner world of the mind, it has very little to say. And when it comes to consciousness itself, science falls curiously silent. There is nothing in physics, chemistry, biology or any other science that can account for your having an interior world. In a strange way, scientists would be much happier if minds did not exist. Yet without minds there would be no science. This ever-present paradox may be pushing Western science into what Thomas Kuhn called a paradigm shift, a fundamental change in worldview. Hello and welcome, Peter Russell, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Nice to be with you. Now, Peter, today we're going to discuss uh, some of your work on the origin and the nature and the evolution of consciousness. But uh, before we start that, perhaps you could just uh, give listeners a little bit of your background and how you came to be doing this work. Yes, it was um, somewhat surprising for me because I was initially um, very much of a scientific bent, I was actually a mathematician. I loved mathematics and I was studying mathematics at Cambridge and then moved into theoretical physics, which is very, very similar. And in the background, I was always interested in the mind and consciousness and didn't really give it too much attention. But then gradually I just realized that consciousness was a huge problem for science. And however much physics I did, I couldn't see any way it was ever going to explain why, you know, I was actually conscious having experiences. And it struck me as a paradox that the whole of physics takes place in the mind. And the one thing that physics can't explain is why do we have minds? Why doesn't the universe just work perfectly well without consciousness? And so that led me off into an exploration, first of all, of philosophy, Western philosophy and a bit of Eastern philosophy. And then into experimental psychology, thinking understanding the brain would help me understand consciousness. And it was fascinating. I did a degree in experimental psychology and consciousness was hardly mentioned. I learned a lot about the brain and memory and the chemicals and all of that stuff. But no one was really interested in consciousness itself. And I felt the people who were really interested in that were the sort of yogis and saints in India and other places in the East who actually looked at consciousness firsthand. And I realized that was the way you explore consciousness, is actually observing it in yourself rather than studying 
the matter of the brain. Consciousness is a subjective thing. And so I got involved in meditation as a way of looking at consciousness. I went out to India. I lived there for six months studying with the Maharishi initially, the Beatles fame, because I'd started TM back in those days. This was in the late 60s and learned an incredible lot there. That was a very valuable time in my life just to be sitting with somebody like that and sapping up their own wisdom and knowledge and came back really with that as my sort of personal mission. I think two things happened in India. One, I realized there was something to spirituality. I'd rejected religion as a kid. Um, it just seemed a load of weird mumbo jumbo that didn't make sense. And, you know, how could I believe all that stuff? But I realized when I was in India, there was something to spirituality, meaning to the, you know, the, the investigation of our own inner world and the awakening of human consciousness. And also realizing that this was going to be so important for the world that almost every problem we face, whether it's you know, personal, social, economic, global, environmental problems, they all come back to human mind, human consciousness, human thinking, human decisions in one way or another. And it struck me that we're functioning from a fairly limited mode of consciousness. And if we're really going to successfully tackle the problems facing us, we really need to be exploring consciousness and how we can free consciousness from its more egocentric or short-term thinking. And so that was really a turning point. And I came back and really set up a meditation center and eventually started writing books on consciousness and the role of spiritual awakening in the world today. Um, yeah, so that's, what, that's how I began, really. And then, then moved into actually teaching in corporations. I spent about 15 years working in the corporate world, not for any particular company, but designing and running seminars on personal development, which allowed me to bring in a lot of the ideas around consciousness that I was excited by in those times and finding ways to deliver them to people whose primary concerns were meeting their quarterly budgets, keeping the kids in school, that sort of thing, paying the mortgage, just ordinary everyday people. And seeing how can you take these ideas, these spiritual ideas, and make them relevant to ordinary people in everyday terms? And that was a fascinating period. I loved doing that. And you know, over time, written a number of books and made videos and things. But I think all along, the general background mission has been trying to distill the essential spiritual teachings. Just what is the essence of what all the different teachers are talking about? Trying to distill that out for myself. And as I go along, sharing what I discover with, with other people through talking, writing, recordings, whatever. As you say, for modern materialistic science, consciousness is what's known as the hard problem and with good reason. And the crux of it is trying to discover how consciousness could possibly arise from matter. And it always occurred to me in any case that what evolutionary purpose would that serve if we take the Darwinian view of evolution? How would the development of consciousness, it, you know, I thought to myself, why bother? Yes. Um, well, I think, yes, 
that question comes up, I think, if you if you believe that consciousness comes out of matter in some way, then obviously the question comes up, yes, why bother? Um, why should evolution develop consciousness when it, what's it do? I mean, as we understand the world now, you know, it all seems to be a great unfolding according to laws that we are discovering, and some of them include true randomness, etc. But nevertheless, consciousness doesn't seem to be involved. We should just be functioning as very complex biological systems, processing data, making decisions, and life, you know, doing its thing through us. Why do we have experience? And as you say, this is the hard question, the way the hard question was framed really by, by David Chalmers, who sort of coined the term about 20 years ago now. You're saying the, you know, the easy problems of consciousness are to do with the brain, explaining why a certain brain activity leads to a certain experience in the mind. And he pointed out these are far from easy, really, but maybe in you know, 20, 30, 50 years time, we might understand exactly what goes on in the brain when you have a certain insight, solve a problem, fall in love, or just looking at a tree, whatever. The hard problem is why should any of that brain activity actually lead to subjective experience? Because they are totally different. The brain activity is a physical phenomena, and we assume the physical world isn't sentient, doesn't have consciousness. We assume that atoms don't have consciousness and the nerve cells don't have consciousness. Why should a particular activity in insentient matter ever give rise to a non-material experience? So that's the essence of the hard problem. And so if you, you say, if you believe that that is what has happened, then the question comes, you know, a, how does it happen? Why, why does this happen? And B, um, is it useful from a, from a Darwinian point of view? You know, why does it add to survival? I would actually, I, I think it does, it, it does add survival value in terms of it allows us, I think, to focus attention. It gives us, it gives us an internal picture of the world, which we can then, relate to and focus our attention on things or what needs to be done but that you know that is that is a value it has but I, that doesn't explain why it occurred why it appeared now in considering consciousness and then dismissing it or perhaps not even considering it at all uh, materialistic scientists tend to deny their own subjective experience uh, and indeed i read something recently that was i think it was just a section from one of uh, richard dawkins books where he was describing uh, what he, he said, this is really what all that I am, I'm nothing more than this. And it, it was appalling and it seemed to, it actually just seemed to negate the the evidence in front of him to the contrary, that he was much more than that he was saying that he was. Yes, I, I find these sorts of statements most puzzling. I was having a discussion like this at a while back with somebody who was saying, well, you know, I don't actually, I don't believe in consciousness. I was saying, well, what do you mean you don't believe in consciousness? He said, well, it's all just, you know, the functioning of, you know, nerve cells and electrochemical activity, etc." And I said, but, you know, you are experiencing your thinking about it. Your thinking about this is nevertheless something that is arising in your experience. And he said, oh, yes, but it all could be an illusion. And I was saying, 
but then who is who is experiencing the illusion you know there is consciousness here in fact the one thing you cannot deny is the fact that you are experiencing and he kept coming back to oh but it's just you know it's just a result of brain activity and as you say somehow people i don't know how you can do it overlook that the the most obvious fact the only thing that we are certain of is that we are having experience that's the only thing we are certain of is that there is experience there is awareness we we could doubt we can doubt our theories we can doubt you know even doubt our perceptions it could be an illusion a mirage we could all be sitting in a virtual reality but we'd still be experiencing even if what we're experiencing was a fabricated reality and the, the, this it puzzles me it's like i don't know people almost like have this position they they just don't want to you know they don't want to accept the existence of consciousness yet without consciousness there'd be no science there'd be no ideas there'd be no imagination of what the world is about it's strange i just don't get it now i can see why or one could see why perhaps that a modern scientist might want to just dismiss consciousness or just put it away as something to deal with another day because yeah. because they can't explain it but i've never quite understood lay people's kind of enthusiasm for dismissing it because i mean you can say that they can't explain it either but they, they can't explain a lot of lay people can't explain some of the simplest scientific principles they don't understand them at all maybe they've never tried but that doesn't seem to trouble them too much whether they're just uh, repeating the, the mainline consensus on this we live in a world where a lot of people maybe the majority of people feel that the scientific worldview is the correct view of reality and they pick it up through you know whether it's newspapers or conversations or magazine articles or tv programs whatever they pick up the standard scientific view and go along with it i think without really thinking it through i i suspect that's what's happening and so they just they feel this is what's correct somebody richard dawkins has said this and he's you know, he's an Oxford Don or whatever, and he's so really important and written all these books. So what he says must be right. I suspect quite a bit of that is what is happening. But also the other point you make is, you know, there's, you know, science ignores consciousness, which I think, you know, there's, it can have good reason to ignore it. There's a difference between dissing it and ignoring it. You know, to, to ignore it says, you know, we understand, our understanding of the universe seems to work perfectly well without getting into consciousness and since it's a whole weird subject let's just ignore it and that's different from saying it doesn't exist or it's just an illusion or just a fabrication of the brain now there has been a paradigm shift in science uh, one which occurred with the discovery of quantum physics and and that entire world inside worlds below worlds and just the, the general weirdness there but it hasn't really been fully integrated into modern scientific thinking or practice or indeed the general consciousness and i think this is because something that you've certainly spoken about uh in your books and presentations is that there tends to be a resistance with that with the scientists themselves and in fact i'm not sure if it was your phrase or someone else's but that science tends to proceed and um at one funeral at a time yes that was um somebody i forget who it was now who was actually paraphrasing max planck um the quantum physicist what max planck said was uh, new scientific ideas come into 
get accepted, not because scientists change their minds, but the old scientists eventually die out. Uh, so he was saying, basically pointing out that we hold on to our ideas. We're more attached to our ideas and beliefs than just about anything else. And this was what Thomas Kuhn, who really coined the term paradigm about, what, 40, 50 years ago in his book, the what's it, History and Structure of Scientific Revolutions, I think that was the title. He coined the idea of paradigm, and what he showed was that just this thing that we don't change our thinking easily, and that science progresses through these sudden shifts of framework, of theory, but they take a long time to happen. And you know, the classic case was you know, Copernicus coming along with, after being 1,500 years of the basic belief seeing that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything went around it. But there was the problem of the planets. Why did the planets move as they did? And Plato said everything moved on circles, and obviously the planets wandered around the sky. In fact, the Greek word planeta means to wander. And Copernicus came up with his idea, but the establishment then was the church. And, you know, he wouldn't even publish because he was scared of what the church would say. And when Copernicus, 70 years later, sorry, not Copernicus, Galileo, 70 years later, looked through his telescope and came up with evidence to support Copernicus, it said the cardinals refused to look down the telescope because they knew he must be wrong. And it was only really another 70 years after that, when Newton came along and did the mathematics and proved it was right, that the idea got accepted. So it takes it takes a while for new ideas to, to settle in. And I think, this, I think that's what's happening with consciousness. We're at the stage where there's a lot of things that don't quite fit, but we're holding on to the old materialistic model because that's the, that's the currently accepted view. And we're trying to fit consciousness into basically a materialistic worldview. We're trying to fit something that's, in essence, non-material into a materialistic worldview. Uh, now, you mentioned Newton, and since his time and a lot of the understandings of the world that he initiated, even though this was a guy who had a vast library of books on alchemical subjects and all sorts of other quote-unquote magical things, but the, our way of understanding the world has seen a, a, a divide, a hard divide between science and spirituality. And it's been a relatively short period of time before that started to be unpicked again. And certainly a lot of work that's gone on in the world of quantum physics has begun, has led people reluctantly or otherwise back to a situation that existed maybe for thousands of years before that, maybe all of human existence before that, we just don't know, where science and spirituality weren't necessarily separate disciplines. Yes. In a way, science has only existed in its current form for a few hundred years. It was sort of people like Rene Descartes and Bacon in England sort of formulated the idea of studying the physical world, that we could actually measure it and study it. And before then, it's like the study of the world was very much within a religious context. And for Europe, that was primarily a Judeo-Christian context with a little bit of Islamic influence. But that, that was the context in which we studied the world. So it was like it was within that context of an almighty deity and who and we were the you know pride of his world or whatever. And there was some science, but it was it was within that context. And then there was this 
division that happened. In fact, I think it was Rene Descartes who said, um, and they called himself a natural philosopher, he said, let us natural philosophers study the natural world and we will leave the world of the mind to the, to the church. But saying that because he knew if he you know, stood on the toes of the church, in those days you were liable to get burnt at the stake. So I think that's when the division started happening. And then just progressively, as we've understood more and more of the world, and, and that understanding is so powerful, our understanding you know, of the physical world, particularly if you take quantum mechanics and you know, our computers, you know, your cell phone, you know, what we're communicating with now, it depends heavily on our understanding of quantum mechanics in terms of how the chips work, etc. That worldview is so successful in itself, so powerful, that consciousness has just got ignored, sidelined. We don't, we don't bother with it. And so the world of the mind has been left to the church, and the church has been almost completely sidelined because we say, you know, the world of what we understand from a scientific point of view trumps whatever the church says about how the origin came into being. And so that's just, it's left on, left on the back shelf, more or less. But in, in sort of throwing out the religious point of view, we've actually thrown out, I think, the whole depth of wisdom and understanding which exist in spiritual traditions beyond their particular metaphysics of how the world came into being. But I think they all contain a deep understanding about the nature of consciousness and how we can liberate our own minds. And of course, the scientific approach to this, even scientific thinking in non-scientists, has a tendency to make us consider consciousness as a thing, as you alluded to earlier, just one among many phenomena for us to understand. But of course, that's a kind of a bit of a cul-de-sac and a trap in its own in its own right. I think this is one of the most fundamental mistakes we make without even realizing it. Um, as soon as we talk about consciousness and add NES onto something, we turn an adjective into a noun in order to talk about it. You know, like we might talk about, you know, sadness or happiness. We're talking about the, you know, the quality of being happy or sad, but we talk about it with a noun. We do the same thing with consciousness. We're really talking about the quality of being conscious which, as I said earlier, is something we all know, we are all conscious. We can all say, yes, I am an experiencing conscious being. And then, we'll, then we start asking, what is consciousness? And immediately we do that, we've actually taken a step in the wrong direction because we end up as like conscious, we are, it is our own conscious self, which is then making an object of consciousness as something separate to be studied, looked at, defined, measured even. And as soon as we do that, we're looking for something else besides the very quality of being conscious. So I think that's, that's the fundamental mistake, is actually talking about consciousness as some thing with almost like an independent existence. And... I see that time and time again when you look at you know, where scientists are beginning to explore the subject. They, they are looking at it as something to be defined and then looked at and rather than recognizing it is the very essence of that which is doing the defining, doing the knowing. It, it is 
it is our ability consciousness i would say is our ability to actually know and experience now you mentioned a moment ago that you could make an argument for consciousness having an evolutionary purpose giving a, a creature an evolutionary advantage um, but we also consider that we observe consciousness in our pets in animals in general even at different levels uh, down you know sort of the the hierarchy and the chain of other living creatures and mm-hmm. we then say what purpose would does it have in our in our cat or dog having consciousness i mean what evolutionary benefit does that confer to them because if we were to just fully subscribe to the idea of a darwinian dog eat dog survival of the fittest world then why have consciousness seemingly permeating the you know the, the entire living world well i don't i mean i don't think the darwinian view actually holds for a different reason and we, we'll come back to me what you're asking here and that is that assumes that consciousness was developed because it it had some value it had some purpose and i don't i don't think it was developed from you know a survival of the fittest creatures that became conscious survived better which is the basic darwinian view if you have consciousness you're going to survive better and therefore it's a good thing i see that you know consciousness is there in all creatures and it does. I think it does have a value, but it's not. It's not from a Darwinian perspective. There's a subtle difference there. I think all beings are conscious. It isn't that it came into existence because it had value, but I think it it has value. Or let's just take a dog. I think we can relate to dogs most easily, probably because a lot of us have pets. A dog is clearly a conscious being. When someone says, you know, animals aren't conscious, I think what they really mean is that animals are not conscious that they are conscious. I mean, one of the possibly unique things, and I say possibly unique things about human beings, is that we know that we know. We are conscious that we are conscious. And this whole conversation is founded on the fact that we recognize we are a conscious being. I don't think a dog actually consciously recognizes that it is conscious. Nevertheless, I believe it is having experiences it looks at the world it is seeing its own particular projection of the world and this is what i think in in, in all animals there are the sense organs taking in data from the world and then the brain analyzes that data puts it all together and creates its picture its representation of what is happening out there and it's taking you know the Whatever the light is, the, the patterns of light, the patterns of movement of air molecules that come in through the air, the, the smells, that are, the molecules that are stimulating its nose, whatever. And it creates a picture of the world out there. And I think that that is what the animal then responds to, is that picture in consciousness. And most of the time if you watch a you know a dog most of the time it's sort of it's relaxed it's just observing the world if something catches its attention then the consciousness gets focused which is something which is clearly corresponding to brain activity focusing on a certain aspect of the experience but in that in that focusing of the attention we can then pay attention to a particular point in the environment it may be some you know, possible threat or danger. It may be a source of food. It may be the source of a mate, some mating opportunity, whatever it is, the attention becomes focused. And I think that focusing of attention has 
has a value subjectively. And I think that that's what we do as human beings. We, in fact, we're not like dogs. We spend most of the time with a focused attention because we are thinking about things, analyzing things, worrying about things, hoping, expecting. We're actually unlike dogs in that we don't sort of sit back and just relax a lot of the time. We seem to be continually in a focus mode, which is probably part of our downfall because that makes the mind continually, in a way, uptight and tense. So, so I would say, in a sense, I think there is value to it, but it, it, that isn't why consciousness emerged. I think consciousness is an intrinsic quality of the cosmos. But if there's any um, Darwinian thing here, you could argue that if consciousness, if being aware of the world, having this incredibly sophisticated map of the world presented to our awareness, if that has value over being a pure automaton, if that has value, then nervous systems which created a richer, more um, useful map of the world would be favoured from a Darwinian perspective. And that would be an argument for the evolution of the complexity of things like the cerebral cortex in human beings, that it gives us a, a better model of the world. So you could apply a Darwinian argument to the development of the nervous system, but not to the development of consciousness itself, which for me is always present. There's never a moment in which it's not present. So if we then look at the idea of matter uh, excuse me, a consciousness arising from matter and realize that it's actually the other way around, you then have to consider, um, as you say, you're talking about consciousness throughout the cosmos, that trees have a form of consciousness. Uh, in fact, even rocks, perhaps. I mean, if it's going to extend right throughout everything. Yes, and we have to be a little cautious here because it's easy to, I think, mistakenly take what we know as our own experience and projecting that onto a tree or a rock or whatever. Um, but just, just to, again, step back a moment here, I, the argument that everything has consciousness comes from the fact that it's, it's almost impossible to draw a line. You know, if we say dogs or cats are conscious, fish, you know, I believe you know, a spider in its own way has its tiny little map of the world, and you go down to an amoeba or something, a bacterium, it would have its own little map of the world. If you say, you know, amoeba don't, but spiders do, you've got to explain what what is the difference. And the, the view that's coming in more and more, now it's, it's still very small, it's a minority, but I think this is the new paradigm, is that it isn't that consciousness was created by matter, but that an intrinsic quality of the cosmos, of all matter, is that there is an interior world. There's an interior aspect to everything, a subjective aspect to everything. But the subjective aspect of a bacterium is, you know, it's like a billionth of what ours is. It's virtually nothing, but it's not completely nothing. And you go down to, you know, just a crystalline structure is going to be a billionth of a bacterium's. But we can't say there's absolutely nothing there. We have to posit that the capacity for experience is always there. But that doesn't mean that a crystal 
is experiencing like we know it. And a rock is basically a crystalline substance. So I would say a rock has far, far, far less awareness than even a simple bacterium. A bacterium is a much, much more complex system than a rock. And the, the correlation that seems to hold up is that the degree of consciousness which is manifest is a reflection of the complexity of the physical system. And I think, you know, that's why we, you know, we have one of the most complex nervous systems on the planet. And that's probably why our consciousness is the most, um, is the richest, most awake consciousness on the planet. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, when we talk about the consciousness of a rock, it's, it's basically nothing. There's nothing really manifest there, but it's not absolutely nothing. It's tiny, tiny, say a fraction of a bacterium. A tree... Now, a tree, you know, there's going to, it's in a way saying, yes, the cells of a tree are conscious in the same way a bacterium is. Then we have to look at, you know, what is the organization of the system there? There's no obvious nervous system as we know it in the animals or in the vertebrates. But there's, there's obviously some sensing of the environment and there's interesting research coming out in, in recent years about how trees, plants, are actually sensitive to each other through biochemical exchanges. So there's sensing going on. And if there's sensing going on, there may be some sort of internal model of reality. It would probably be very faint compared to what we know, but I don't think we can deny it altogether. But I think the important thing here is it, it doesn't mean that trees, you know, think and have feelings like we do or that rocks you know have feelings it's that you know the, what we know of consciousness thoughts and feelings thoughts particularly i think are just a human experience feelings i think feelings most of the i, I would actually go so far as say you know reptiles birds mammals have feelings For what we know of the brain there's enough evidence to suggest that they have feelings but then, you know, I wouldn't think that a simple worm has a feeling. Its nervous system hasn't developed that far yet. So whatever the consciousness is in a bit much simpler structure, it would be, it would have none of the qualities that we actually know as consciousness. Well, if you delve into the world of quantum physics, the idea that matter is all that matters begins to dissolve as the, you know, fundamentals of matter itself come apart and matter increasingly begins to look like a or appear to be a, a mental construct yes yes um this is i think one of the fascinating things that's been happening with modern physics just in the last the last century really since the advent of quantum mechanics and where we've gone from there before we thought that matter was obviously you know solid material and then we started realizing it was just elementary particles orbiting each other. And most of that was empty space. I sometimes use the analogy that if you, you know, made the, made the nucleus of an atom the size of a golf ball, then the electrons would be like peas flying around two or 300 feet away. It'd be like a football stadium with a golf ball in the middle and peas flying around the stands. And that's just almost totally empty space. And then what we realized was even that isn't true, that the, you know, the nucleus, the protons, the neutrons, the electrons aren't actually particles at all. We call them particles. That's just how we imagine them. 
and we get trapped into thinking because we call them particles that they actually are particles. We're now discovering they're not particles at all. They're sort of, we don't even know what's there. It's like there's energy changes which we can measure or there's probabilities rather of energy changes happening. And in the end, all we know is the mathematics. In, in modern quantum theory, there's about six or seven different contenders to explain what's going on. They're called the interpretations of quantum mechanics. And the most popular one is what's called the Copenhagen Convention, which says that you know, when we observe something, what's called the wave equation, which is the mathematical equation of the different probabilities of things occurring, collapses into a certain reality. But that's just one possible interpretation. The many worlds interpretation says no. When you, you know, all the realities coexist and in just an almost infinite number of universes. And then there's, you know, David Bohm has another interpretation that is a much more mechanistic one that things actually, there is, a re, there is an underlying reality. So there's, there's the, these different interpretations and all of the interpretations are actually taken from human experience. We take what we know in experience and project it onto the mathematics. And you could say that physics is actually mathematics plus models projected onto it in order to understand the mathematics. And there's one school of quantum mechanics, which is, I suppose, my favorite school, which is called shut up and do the math, which basically means the math works. All these interpretations are almost inevitably flawed because they're interpretations. We don't know what's happening. And maybe there's, in a sense, nothing happening. There was just the mathematics. Mathematics is describing the, the exchange of energy and information in the physical world. And that's about all we can say is that there is this, there is, some, there is a physical world where there is activity, there are energy exchanges, there is information there. And then we as human beings take in that information through the senses and then the brain, as I mentioned, very cleverly puts it all together. And then we experience this model, this map of the world. But the map we experience is actually nothing like what is out there. I mean, a simple example of that is, you know, you experience a color. You see red, for example. There's no such thing as red light. There's light of a certain frequency or certain energy, and even that is just a model in the mind. It's just a concept we've come up with. And there's no, you know, red light, nerve fibers or anything. The brain analyzes the frequencies and puts it all together. The redness only appears in the mind. It's a creation in the mind. And that's true of everything we experience. I mean, you're listening to my voice. There's air molecules moving backwards and forwards, stimulating your eardrum. That's all there is. My voice doesn't exist out there. There's just movement of air with a lot of other things affecting it. And then the brain very carefully, very cleverly extracts the vibrations which are to do with my voice and gives you the sound of my voice, which you then hear and you start interpreting it and understanding it. And it's the same with matter. It seems there's no matter actually out there. As, 
Hans-Peter Dürer, a German physicist I love, said, whatever matter is made of, it's not made of matter. We don't know what it is, but it's not solid matter out there. Our concept of solid matter is part of how the brain presents to us its model of the world so that we can then understand it, relate to it, interact with it. But it leads to the conclusion that in the end, matter is a construct in the mind, which is the opposite of where we started, which is, you know, how does mind, how does consciousness come out of matter? We end up with the opposite position of how does matter, how does the experience of matter arise in consciousness? It's the complete reverse. If we take um, consciousness then as the um, ground of being, the, we can then go one further and say, okay, well, why is there any consciousness? Why should there be something rather than nothing? And I've actually read some relatively new research and ideas recently that uh, a lot of it based in mathematics, but that something from nothing is possible, i.e. You know, the vacuum being far from empty. And not only is something from nothing possible, it's likely and maybe even necessary. Yes, yes. I'm familiar with, with, with some of these ideas, which are, yes, they're coming out of quantum mechanics and the fact that the, you know, the, the nothingness of what's called the vacuum state is continually like frothing with particles which come into existence and disappear again. There's that level of activity going on. And yes, it does seem that, you know, something can come out of nothing and it's almost, as you say, inevitable. It's happening the whole time. And we're beginning to understand that. But all of that is still taking place, uh, sorry, our understanding of all of that is still taking place within a materialistic mindset. And so we're talking about how matter, the matter of an electron or whatever it is, can come into being out of nothing. The direction I'm leaning in more and more these days is to say that there is only ultimately um, again, consciousness isn't quite the right word, but the the underlying field is a field of awareness, and it is it is the awareness which is, in a sense, bubbling and creating for itself the experience of matter. And it, and I think that all you could say there always has been that capacity for. Awareness is what is what has always been there. That's what so many of the you know, various metaphysical teachings point to, that they've come to it from different conclusions. But I'm seeing we can begin to see that from a Western scientific perspective. We can begin to argue that in the end, the matter, everything we know is an arising in consciousness. And the, the, in the final analysis, there is only awareness there that the universe is an incredibly sophisticated, complex field of knowing that is continually evolving, and in that evolving, coming to know itself more and more fully. So then you, you could posit the question then, I mean, is it possible that there is nothing in the sense that we understand that there is something, that actually it is just an experience of, of awareness, of consciousness? Yes. Yes, I, I would say we can. There is nothing in the sense of no thing. Not that, that, not that nothing exists, but no, I think it's an important distinction, no thing. Because 
I would argue that thingness is actually what the the mind in its having a representation of the world creates the concept or the actual not just the concept it creates the experience of things and separate things and that's a very useful thing to do if we are as biological beings navigating this world then if we, if our model of the world has things in it and we can see separate things and we know to avoid certain things whatever that's a very very useful thing so the thingness i think thingness is the way consciousness maps the world but what we're understanding about the actual world in itself every time we try and you know go and say what is this what is matter what is the thingness it just dissolves it just disappears fundamental particles the more we look at them they just dissolve they're disappearing and i think we're forced to the conclusion now we're not actually coming to the conclusion but we're being pushed in this direction of actually accepting there is no thing there but that's not there's nothing i would say there is this there is this field incredibly complexly structured field and the observation of that field creates the experience of things but there's no actual things in the field there's just this continually evolving inter- field interacting with itself all familiar with the the biblical uh, phrase you know god said let there be light and we hear a lot of uh, talk in new age circles about us being light beings and uh, there's research in the quantum realm thinking of light speed and uh, virtual particles and beyond light speed and um, tachyons and all of that tying into the idea that there's um because light itself doesn't experience it's not subject to normal space-time rules and i know you've spoken of parallels between light and consciousness yes it's something i've played with a lot and thought about a lot um in fact when i was studying theoretical physics i was deeply fascinated by light the nature of light and the thing that initially caught my attention was from einstein's theory of relativity and i think that's one of the things you're pointing to is that what einstein showed was that the faster you go the slower time goes the more space contracts and also that the more massive you become at the speed of if you ever traveled at the speed of light then time would stop and space or distance in the direction of travel would contract to zero and people just ignored that many people pointed it out einstein looked at it many people looked at this but it seemed that because nothing can travel at the speed of light because its mass would become infinite so nothing can travel at the speed of light therefore we don't have to worry about the fact that time stops we can accept time becoming slower but time stopping is too weird but i started playing with the fact that well light travels at the speed of light by definition and therefore from light's point of view which is a it's a technical term rather than a psychological point of view but from light's point of view in physics it would not know time there would be no time and no space and also light has no mass and therefore in some sense light is beyond space time and matter it's more fundamental and I, I looked at that and some of the implications of that, and then I started realizing we also use the word light 
for consciousness. You know, we talk about, you know, the inner light. I had a, a flash of inspiration or when someone's unconscious, you know, the lights went out or even enlightenment, words like that. The, the word light has a lot of uses when it comes to consciousness. And then I started realizing that, you know, what happens in, in meditation when you go into deep meditation, often, well, there's one thing, there's the experience of, you know, the inner light or the white light, whatever. But I became more interested in the fact that space, time, and matter begin to disappear. I mean, the time is something, you know, people talk about that, moving into the timeless moment where there, there seems to be no time. And you move into in a sense where any sense of physical identity with a body with a particular point in space dissolves one's moving beyond space time and matter in the mind and yet there is still that quality of just pure consciousness the inner light of consciousness the inner light of being is still there and i just started thinking well there's very close parallels here between how light in the physical world seems to be beyond space time and matter and the light of consciousness in terms of our experience, seems more fundamental than our actual experience of space, time, and matter. And it's almost like light is somehow, almost like it's the first manifestation from the no-thingness. Whatever the no-thingness is, this field of pure being, its first manifestation in the physical world is what we think of as light. And its manifestation in the subjective world is just the light of our own our own being before it takes on a particular form or experience and obviously as you mentioned that's something in, in many spiritual traditions god is god is light the idea of light being fundamental and it seemed to me that these two things were pointing in this in the same direction so whatever the whatever the fundamental nature of reality is it's almost like the closest we can come to it in any terms of relationship, whether it's an understanding of the physical world or an internal experiential relationship, light seems to be the, the key thing. Now, reality, as we're experiencing it, certainly seems to be real. And I think most people accept it as real in a fundamental sense. Um, and our awareness um, causes us to identify with the self, the I. And I think this may be largely just to the fact that we have differentiated and seemingly separate forms. But this sense of self and separation um, leads us to have an identity and different identities, different beliefs, different perceptions. As things are playing out in reality, certainly at the moment, there's a great deal of competition, not as much cooperation as there used to be. There's conflict. And so this is whether this reality is fundamentally not what we think it is, whether we're plugged into some sort of matrix or some sort of virtual reality program, certainly the way things are playing out at the moment, uh, the, the problems are increasing, as I say, a great deal of conflict, and we're not going in a direction that's likely to sustain this illusion for much longer. Yes, um, several things here, it's important, important stuff. Let's, I mean, let's come back to, first of all, the whole nature of self here there's in a way there's this you can divide it into two areas there's the self 
which we identify with. When you ask a person, you know, who are you? They'll typically, you know, come up with, oh, I'm, I'm a man or, you know, I'm, I'm English or I'm a school teacher. And you can, you know, tell us more, you know, who are you? Well, I'm, you know, I believe in this. I, this is my role. I, I've done this in my life or this is my expectation. These are all individual characteristics of this particular being, their role in the world, how other people see them. And this is what's often called the separate self. It's a separate sense of self of me here in this body, navigating my way through the world, which is there's a truth to this. All those things are true in terms of what we identify with. They're usually things that change as well. You know, we are a body navigating our way through the world. And that sense of identity is very useful. And people sort of criticize it and say oh it's just an illusion it's actually it's no more an illusion than um the bus we're stepping on it's all a creation in the mind whatever the bus we're stepping on is ultimately we don't know but you know it's a very useful model which we have that's that's the reality of what we experience and so that individual sense of self is real it's part of the real reality in which we live and then there's the self, if you like, just the I, which knows all this. And, you know, it's the I that knows I am a whatever it is. I am a man. I am English or whatever. It's, it's the I that knows I am experiencing, I am seeing a bus, whatever. It's the I that knows I'm having this feeling. And that I is always there. It's an essential quality of consciousness. In a way, you could say that being conscious comes with it this sense of I am, which it isn't that I am anything. It's just the, this is, it's the knowing aspect of consciousness, that I am here. And this never changes. I mean, we sometimes say things like, I am not the same person I was 20 years ago. And if you look at that carefully, there's two eyes in there. You know, I, meaning the pure I, that sense of being, which has always been there, that I, which feels the same I as when I was 10 years old, that I hasn't changed. But the person, my beliefs, values have changed a lot over the years. So I am not the same person I was. There's, there's, two, there's two senses of self there. Now, and this is what many, many spiritual teachings have pointed out. I think this is where they get to the essence of the, the problem, really, with human consciousness. We don't actually pay any attention to this pure eye, the eye that's always there. We, we sort of overlook it. And yet it's there. I mean, right now, you know, if I ask you, are you conscious? You know, yes. Do you know, can you say I am? We can all say yes. But we don't. We don't actually pay that any attention. We get much more focused on the separate sense of self, which is the me here navigating the world. What do I need to do? What do people think of me? How's my life going? All this stuff. And that separate sense of self, as I say, it, it's very real. But when we believe that that is true and that is our only sense of self, we then fall into a lot of behaviors which are geared towards supporting, bolstering, maintaining that sense of self. We 
you know, if someone criticizes us, we need to you know, perhaps reaffirm our sense of self. But also this sense of self falls into a belief which is really hypnotized into us from the moment we're born that says, if I'm, if I'm to be happy, if I'm, if I'm going to feel okay, I need to get the world to be a certain way. I need to get people to respond to me a certain way. I need to have certain things. I need to feel powerful. I need to feel secure, whatever. And this starts running our life. And it's this that I think is the problem, because when it runs our life, several things happen. One, we start engaging a lot of behaviors which probably aren't appropriate, unnecessary. We start using the world for our own ends, whether we're using other people for what we want or more tragically, taking from the environment, using the environment, thinking if I could just make more of just the right things, have more of the right things, I'll be happy. It, it leads to really an abusive relationship with the world around. And at the same time, it causes us discomfort inside. You know, this is what Buddha saw. It causes suffering. Uh, our wanting things to be a certain way, our clinging to how things should be in order that the, the separate self can feel good actually leads us to feel unhappy, discontent, to suffer. And then we think, oh, I can alleviate this suffering by getting even more things, by whatever it is, you know, gathering more possessions, more experiences, looking for security. And so it's our identification with this separate sense of self that I think is lies behind so many of the problems we're facing today in the world, not just global problems, but social problems, our personal problems. And that, I think, is why so many of the you know, spiritual teachings around the world have said, you know, what we need to do is to know the true self, to recognize that pure sense of I-ness, which is, which is always there. It's nothing weird or mysterious. It's something we all know, but we just overlook it and get caught up in the world of the separate self. Do these destructive thought patterns and destructive behavior seem to me to sort of go hand in hand with um, a belief or rather a lack of belief that there's any purpose in reality, in existence? And it's this sort of post, post-modern pessimism um, that most people seem to suffer from. And they believe that there is no ultimate purpose. And this causes um, a terrible nihilism, I think. So I don't know if you've discerned in your life's research and work and thinking and feeling so far if, the, if, if there is an ultimate purpose here. Yes, this is, um, all these questions have two sides. Um, I don't think there's an ultimate purpose in something insofar as, you know, the, the purpose of life is to do this or get this or whatever, because I say that because there are, probably on, on this planet at the moment, millions and millions of different views of what the ultimate purpose of life is. And they can't all be correct. If there is an ultimate purpose, then only one of those views is correct, and everybody's arguing about which one is correct. I think most senses of purpose are actually human-created. We think about the world, and we, we come up with a sense of purpose. And it makes us feel good to feel there is a purpose. I have a purpose. And 
so I think in terms of an ultimate purpose, most of it is things we have conjured up and which we then live by and they feel good and they serve us. But then on the, there's a second sense in which, yes, we can, some of these purposes are actually really valuable. It's like, and this could be an individual purpose. You know, a, a person may, their purpose may be to, I, re, you know, I, I really want to um, really foster education in the developing world because I really feel this is absolutely critical and that becomes their life purpose and, that, and that's wonderful. Uh, but that again is their individual purpose. It doesn't mean to say that everybody's purpose should be fostering education in the developing world. So that's an individual purpose. But what you're really pointing to is the cosmos. Is, is there a purpose to the cosmos? And I tend to, I drop the word purpose because it's too loaded, like there's an intention. But what I see is, if the universe is basically a knowing system, if it is fundamentally aware, it is knowing, it is knowing itself at all levels of existence. The universe is a self-knowing system of which we are one tiny part. You know, us as human beings are a particular form of the universe knowing itself, and so is an amoeba. The universe is knowing itself, and there seems to be a very consistent direction to the universe, to evolution, which is this growth of complexity and consciousness together. And it seems the direction of evolution is towards fuller and fuller knowing of the universe. And there are people coming around to this, scientists who have looked at something called the anthropic principle, which basically says all the fundamental constants have to be exactly what they are. Things like the force of gravity, the charge of an electron, things like this. If you change them by a tiny bit, the universe doesn't work. And some people say, oh, that's just, that's just the way it is. We couldn't possibly observe a universe which didn't work. And, you know, it's just a chance. It's a one in a zillion fluke that the universe works and exists. Other people say, no, actually, what is happening here, the universe seems to be set up in order to arrive at greater and greater levels of complexity, in order that life may arrive, in order that intelligence may develop, in order that the universe, the cosmos, may come to know itself more and more fully. And that seems to make sense for me. So you could say, I'd say I don't like purpose so much, but the direction of the universe is towards increasing self-knowledge of itself. And we, as a tiny, tiny, tiny part of that, here on this little planet, are doing that ourselves. And that seems, and that becomes my own purpose, is knowing how do i know myself more fully what 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 does it mean to be aware what's going on what's happening in the mind to actually begin to understand myself and the more i do that i feel the more free i become actually the happier i become the more ease i become and also the more i feel i'm able to then fulfill a role in in society which is coming out of my own beingness rather than out of my sense of a separate self. Well, this should give us great hope really for the future that despite the many disasters of the last 
2,000 years or even 10,000 years of human history that there's a possibility of ongoing evolution and evolution in consciousness as well, that we can transform our understanding and perceptions of reality in, in air quotes, of course, and, and move beyond where we are now. And certainly there's a lot of science behind some of these ideas as well that people can look into. This is not pure fantasy or wishful thinking, though I have read some commentators saying, oh, well, this idea of a transformation of any kind, which again, doesn't have to happen overnight. It's not, we don't wake up one day, transform. But some commentators said, oh, well, this is born of denial because basically we're going down the toilet and we just can't bear to face up to it. But then there was the idea in the past, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, this idea has persisted. And, you know, for example, even de Chardin's Omega Point idea, there's a lot of this sort of thinking stems from well before the current crises that we're currently enmeshed in. Yeah, a couple of things here. One, I mean, I think the direction we're moving in, there's, there's three parts of it. One, our understanding of the world through, I mean, through science in general is increasing at an incredible pace, which is accelerating. And the technologies that are coming from that, who knows in the future what abilities we will have. So much of what we have today was magic in the past. I mean, you should just go back to the time of Mozart and, you know, show him an iPod. He just, uh, it's magic. You can, hear an, you can hear an orchestra through this little tiny thing made of a material. He doesn't even know what the material is. Give him an antibiotic. That's magic. So much of the stuff we take for granted was magic in the past. Even, you know, even go back 25 years. How many of us had email 25 years ago? Unless you were an academic or in the military, you probably never even heard of email. And now we just, you know, accept it. The, the web is only just over 20 years old, you know, and streaming is, what, 10 years old. So much stuff. Where are we going to be in another 10, 15, 20 years, let alone 50 years? The world of 50 years' time in terms of our understanding technology will be magic to us. And the way we are creating this world with disregard for the system as a whole, for other people in the system, for the planet itself, for the environment, we are simultaneously moving into, we are in a state of real crisis, which is going to deepen and get more severe. There's, there's no way of avoiding that. Things, things are going to get a lot, lot worse, a lot more challenging. We could have solved them, we could solve them now, but obviously there isn't the political willingness, the individual willingness. We are sort of blindly going on and the third trend is there is this awakening of consciousness which i think really started back in the 60s and it was fairly naive back then but we've been working on it exploring it and that's moving ahead and all these things are moving ahead faster and faster and faster and i see us moving into a world where where we are going to have as i say technology beyond our imagination, to be able to do things we cannot even imagine today in a world which is going to need serious, serious change and help like never before with people who are, I would guess, more free in themselves, more compassionate, more understanding than we've ever had before. How these three things come together, I have no idea, but we are going to have the need the resources, and the creativity. How that pans out, I wouldn't even, I have no, no idea. Any guess I would make would be way off the mark because it would be based on 
this reality now rather than the future. But then you mentioned Teilhard de Chardin. He was very influential in my thinking many, many years ago. And he was talking about the omega point as the end point of evolution, which is where our evolution is heading towards. And he was describing that. He was, he was a Jesuit. He was describing it in Christian-like terms. But it was really, he was describing the full conscious awakening of humanity, which you could say is letting go, the f- letting go of our illusions of a separate self, etc. Letting go of that en masse. Now, he put that thousands of years ahead because he was thinking in a linear time scale, as most of us do. It's very hard of us to very hard for us to take into account the fact that change is accelerating. It's an inevitable part of evolution that change is always accelerating. The rate of evolution accelerates. And when he saw television, he said, television is going to bring the omega point a lot, lot closer just because it will allow the communication it will allow between people is going to speed things up. Just before he died, the first computers were coming along and he said, I think these are also going to be very significant in the omega point. And if you look at the acceleration, I mean, we've moved way beyond the computers he was seeing, but when you look at the acceleration, how, how things are feeding back on themselves and everything is going faster and faster, I think what he was pointing to as the omega point is actually somewhere within the next hundred years. It's not thousands and thousands of years in the future. We're heading towards something which we may actually experience in our own lifetimes, given you know the possibilities of life extension and things, if we don't totally screw things up in the process. So I think that we are heading towards this point, with, I would say within this century, where we could have the potentially the full awakening of humanity with incredible technology and, you know, facing the most dire planetary crisis we've ever seen. Well, I think in conclusion, it's worth saying that as we all move forward collectively with this, that it is important to have a positive vision for the future. And I'm not talking about some sort of wishy-washy, woolly thinking about, you know, mindless optimism, but really to keep in focus what is good for for all of us and how we want things to be and whatever challenges we face to just keep focused on that and keep moving forward as best we can yes yes and for me that is i just hold i hold that vision of what we can become and holding it also just collectively but also on an individual level and you know it's one thing to say everybody you know people need to change we're too self-centered or whatever too materialistic I'm one of those people. You know, I have my own stuff. I have, you know, I can get caught in materialist stuff at times. I can, you know, see elements of greed or whatever, self-centeredness in myself. I need to be, you know, looking at that in myself. I am, I am one of these people. And that journey of liberating myself becomes an exciting possibility because I begin to see, yes, life, life can be better there can be a greater freedom there can be more joy in life in myself even even in this current environment and my life becomes one of 
seeing that as a potential for myself, as a goal that I am working towards, and knowing that this is something millions of other people are working towards. Like we're all on, we're all on this team of wanting to wake up human consciousness. And it's like the light at the end of the tunnel feels, you know, so bright. It's just drawing us all on. And for me, this is the only game in town worth playing. Now, Peter, you've written a number of books uh, covering a lot of these topics and more, including The Consciousness Revolution, um, Waking Up in Time, The Global Brain, which actually deals with a lot of what we've just been talking about and, and the internet, and also From Science to God, you offer DVDs, seminars and workshops, courses, and you undertake regular speaking engagements. So perhaps you'd maybe like to share with listeners um, details of your website and anything else that you'd like to put out there. Yes, um, my website is very simple. It's peterrussell.com. Two L's on Russell is the only important bit, peterrussell.com, or The Spirit of Now, it's called The Spirit of Now, but peterrussell.com is the main address on which I've got, oh, it's probably about 400 pages now. It's very organic. It's things I just put up, thoughts I have, bits of books, several of my books are up there online, videos I've made, passing thoughts, that sort of thing. It's a collection of a lot of my work and meditation. So I really feel that meditation is an important thing. I've just created a, an online course there called How to Meditate Without Even Trying, which is really about the effortlessness of meditation. So there's some there's things like that on it. Um, and also, as you mentioned, my speaking engagements and whatever, whatever else I'm doing. It's my sort of, I just put a lot of things there that it's a way of sort of, it's a whole new way of publishing that's not really publishing anything particular like a book or a video or something, but just just putting, putting what I'm thinking, my own journey out there. Some of it is stuff that's been there 15 years. Some of it is stuff I'm sort of working on today. Anyway, it's fun. But that's where people can go, peterrussell.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Peter, on legalizefreedom.com. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs on many equally interesting and important topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.